The Matheson Pensions Podcast. Presented by Deirdre Cummins, partner in the Employment, Pensions and Benefits Group at Matheson. This podcast series examines the topical legal issues affecting the operation and management of occupational pension schemes in Ireland and is relevant to pension scheme trustees, employers, pension practitioners and industry professionals. Hello and welcome to the Matheson Pensions Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the IORPS 2 Directive, or to give it its full name, the EU Directive on the Activities and Supervision of Institutions for Occupational Retirement Provision. This directive raises the bar in terms of minimum standards of pension scheme governance across Europe, and when implemented, will significantly increase the compliance burden for pension schemes and their trustees. The IRP2 Directive came into force in January 2017 and must be implemented through national legislation by January next year. It replaces the 2003 Directive, which provided for some common minimum standards for occupational pension schemes across Europe. IRPS 2 is nearly three years in the making and has four key objectives. Better protection for members by ensuring good governance and risk management, the provision of clear and relevant information to members and beneficiaries, removing barriers to cross-border pension schemes, and ensuring that national supervisors have the necessary tools to effectively supervise pension schemes. As this is a directive and therefore is not directly effective, national legislation is needed to implement its various requirements, and until that is introduced, trustees are only required to comply with the current regulatory regime. We have no draft implementing legislation yet in Ireland, and this means that trustees are likely to have quite a short lead-in time before they are required to comply with a raft of new obligations. Having said that, some guidance on the likely approach that may be taken in the legislation can be found in the government's pensions roadmap, which was published earlier this year in February, and in the paper on IRP2 considerations for trustees, issued in October by the Pensions Authority. I would also highlight at this juncture that it's not entirely clear whether all schemes will be required to meet the new requirements, as the directive allows for an exemption for schemes of less than 100 members with respect to most of its provisions. Ireland availed of this exemption when the 2003 directive was implemented. However, given the stated desire at government level to reduce the number of pension schemes, it is certainly possible that a different approach will be taken on this occasion. In terms then of the detail of the directive, it covers five main areas. Governance, investment, information for members, cross-border pension schemes and principles of prudential supervision. In this podcast, we are focusing on governance, information for members and principles of prudential supervision, as these are likely to have the greatest impact for trustees of Irish pension schemes. So moving on then, Jane, one of the main areas where we can expect to see quite a bit of change is in governance. And can you take us through maybe some of the requirements of governance as set out in the directive? Sure. So as you mentioned, Deirdre, one of the key aims of the directive is to improve member protection. And the way they want to go about that is by improving the standards of governance and transparency in pension schemes. So at a high level, what the directive is proposing is that schemes will be required to implement a more effective, robust and formalised system of governance. 
Proportionality features throughout the directive and the system of governance that trustees put in place is expected to be proportionate to the size, nature, scale and complexity of their scheme's activities. Now, while some of the governance requirements of the directive are already covered in Irish pensions legislation, there are some that are going to be entirely new to Irish pension scheme trustees. And some of the new requirements are as follows. So first up, we have a new fitness and probity regime. Essentially, this is requiring that the people who run pension schemes, so in the Irish context, that's trustees, are what the directive calls fit and proper to carry out that role. And in terms of what's actually meant by fit and proper, the directive is quite specific. So fit in this context means that the trustees, when they're looked at as a group, have the necessary qualifications, skills and experience to carry out their duties. And proper then means that trustees are of good repute and integrity. The actual requirements for ensuring that a trustee actually meets those fit and proper requirements will be set out by the Pensions Authority. But in the absence of the implementing legislation, we have to look to guidance such as that provided by the authority in its paper on IORPS 2 for some level of guidance on what the authority is going to expect in that regard. The directive also introduces a new concept of key functions. So three key function holders are required to be appointed by schemes if they're not already in place. And for most schemes, I think it's fair to say that they won't be. First up is a new risk management function, which is required to measure, monitor and manage risks on a continuous basis. And connected with that is a requirement for schemes to carry out an own risk assessment at least every three years. The aim of the own risk assessment is to identify risks that could affect the scheme's ability to meet its obligations. Then there's an internal audit function, which again is a new function, and that involves evaluating the adequacy and effectiveness of the scheme's own system of governance by the auditor. And finally, and where applicable, schemes must have an actuarial function in place. Key function holders are required to report material findings and recommendations in their respective areas to trustees. And in some cases, for example, where they identify a material shortcoming to the trustees and no actions are taken to address that, they'll be required to make reports to the Pensions Authority. And I should mention also in relation to key function holders that some kind of similar um, regime to the fitness and probity regime that applies to trustees will apply to them. Essentially, they have to have adequate knowledge and experience and, if applicable, adequate professional qualifications to carry out their functions. And Jane, can I ask you just on that, can all three functions be carried out by the same person? Well, no, what the directive is providing for is that while one individual or organisation can carry out more than one key function, the internal audit function has to be independent from the others. And it should also be noted that generally speaking, and although there are some exemptions, if an individual or organisation is carrying out a key function for the employer, it should be separate to that from the organisation or firm carrying out the same role for the scheme. That requirement might be quite difficult to meet in practice, don't you think? I think that's right. The market in Ireland is relatively small and at the moment it would be relatively common, for example, for the same firm to carry out maybe the actuarial function for both the scheme and the employer. Now, the directive does provide for exceptions, but at a very minimum level, trustees will have to demonstrate that if the same organisation is carrying out any function for both the scheme and the employer, that steps have been taken to ensure that no conflict of interest exists. So staying then with governance for a minute and just in terms of outsourcing, which is another area that's covered by the directive, the directive does allow member states to permit schemes to outsource activities to service providers and most schemes do do that. 
but a number of completely new requirements are being introduced in relation to outsourcing. For example, with respect to any outsourced activity that's covered by the directive, trustees have to put a legally enforceable agreement in place with the service provider and they also have to notify the national regulator. In addition then, if the activity that's being outsourced is one of the key functions or relates to the scheme management, the regulator has to be actually notified ahead of the contract coming into effect. And that's interesting. I suppose it remains to be seen then whether the notification requirements stay as purely notification requirements or whether the Pensions Authority takes on some kind of supervisory role. Yeah, that's one of the areas that we're in the dark. And unfortunately, without the implementing legislation, we've very little idea how that's going to play out in practice. Finally, on the subject of governance, I want to point out that there's an increased emphasis on written policies. So all areas covered by the key functions have to have a written policy in place. You also need a policy in respect of outsourced activities. And in addition, trustees have to put in place what the directive calls sound remuneration policy. That policy is supposed to be in line with the long-term interests of the scheme members, and it has to apply to everyone involved in running the scheme. So that would cover the trustees clearly, but also people carrying out key functions, as well as any staff whose professional activities have a material impact on the risk profile of the scheme. All of the policies have to be reviewed at least every three years, and more frequently if there's any significant change in the area covered by that policy. Okay, so there's clearly plenty to get to grips with there. And I think it's fair to say that while some schemes will already comply with some of these requirements, others will have quite a bit of work to do when the legislation is introduced. Moving on then, the other two elements of the directive that I wanted to cover are the enhanced information requirements and the changing role of the regulator. As I outlined at the outset, one of the main aims of the directive is to introduce clearer and more consistent communications across the EU to members of pension schemes. With this in mind, the directive provides for what they're calling a new pension benefit statement or a PBS, which must contain certain information and which must be given to both active and deferred members of pension schemes. Now, this will be a new requirement under Irish law as currently deferred members are not given benefit statements. And while the directive provides that the information may be provided through electronic means, so online or on a website, issues with deferred member data may present difficulties for trustees in terms of complying with these obligations. And trustees, I think, will also need to consider GDPR requirements, especially if deferred member data is not up to date. And in some instances, it certainly won't be. And I think schemes should start looking at their data sets if they haven't already started that exercise. So. The information then to be contained in the PBS is more extensive than is currently required and it must be provided in a clear manner and it must be free of jargon and technical terms to the extent it can be. The information includes details in relation to the scheme, information on pension benefit projections and details in relation to charges. So, for example, where a pension benefit projection is based on economic scenarios, the statement must also include a best estimate scenario and a realistic worst case scenario. Turning then to the role of the regulator, our pensions authority, the directive requires member states to ensure that schemes are subject to what they're calling prudential supervision and to ensure that the competent authorities, again, our pensions authority, have the necessary means and the relevant expertise, capacity and mandate to achieve the main objective of supervision. 
Supervision is to be based on a forward-looking and risk-based approach and should comprise a combination of off-site activities and on-site inspections. Now, this represents a new approach for pension regulation in Ireland, and it's definitely something that we will be keeping a very close eye on. And finally then, in terms of sanctions, the directive specifies that member states must ensure that their supervising authorities may impose administrative sanctions and other measures applicable to any infringements of the national implementing legislation. These sanctions and measures must be effective, proportionate and dissuasive. Now, of course, that effective, proportionate and dissuasive language is very familiar from the GDPR, where similar requirements were put in place in relation to administrative sanctions. And I think it's also fair to say we're already seeing the effects of this new approach being taken by the authority with trustees. Certainly, I know a number of our trustee clients have recently had to meet with the authority to explain that they're very familiar with how their scheme is being operated and that they're being correctly governed. Jane, having covered the headline requirements of the directive and given the lack of implementing legislation at this very late stage, I think it's important to also highlight the areas where some guidance is available on the likely approach that will be taken to implementing the directive. I think it's fair to say that on the basis that both the Pensions Authority and the government have known for quite some time that implementation of the directive was on the horizon, recent consultation and discussion papers, as well as updated guidance, have been prepared with that in mind. And having reviewed the various papers, it seems to me that the roadmap and the Pensions Authority paper on IRB2 considerations for trustees are probably the most useful here in terms of guidance. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. And given the lack of draft legislation, as well as what looks like now a very tight timeline for the introduction of implementing legislation, I think it would make sense for schemes to consider starting some of the preparatory work For schemes that wish to do that, they can look to the approach that the authority has indicated that it will take on matters covered by the directive for some basic guidance. So with respect to what we can glean from the pensions roadmap, if you recall strand three of the roadmap covered steps that the government proposed would be taken to improve governance and regulation. Clearly that ties in quite neatly with the directive and it reflects the governance element of it. In terms of particular proposals outlined in the roadmap that connect in with the directive, Many of the main points, I think, relate to the fitness and probity regime. And the roadmap outlined a number of measures that I think were relatively likely to see reflected in the draft legislation, or if not in the legislation, in regulations that follow on from that. So some of the things that the roadmap suggested that we might see introduced were firstly changes to the composition of a trustee board. So what the roadmap suggested was that schemes would be required to have a minimum of two trustees, where one had a level seven trustee qualification in the national framework of qualifications and the other, or at least one other, had a minimum of two years experience of acting as a trustee. The roadmap also suggested new annual CPD requirements for trustees, a personal fitness and probity benchmark to ensure that trustees are fit and proper persons, and also a new set of what they're calling professional standards to ensure that trustees have the necessary knowledge and experience, both collectively and individually, to discharge their functions effectively. Now, if you recall, the directive allowed trustee boards to be looked at collectively when establishing whether they were fit and proper. But this seems to go further than that and to require some level of individual knowledge and experience also. So it's going to be interesting to see what the authority suggests in that respect. 
Then backing all of that up, the roadmap indicates that as part of a new scheme authorisation process, which they've said will apply to both new and existing schemes, trustees will be required to demonstrate compliance with these new fitness and probity requirements. And when trustees don't meet the requirements, the authority may have power to remove them as trustees. Aside from the fitness and probity regime, but still on the subject of governance, the roadmap indicated that new governance codes and standards would be published by the authority, and also that procedures would be put in place to ensure that the codes are complied with and reviewed regularly. Now, the authority has already published a number of codes of governance, particularly on the DC side, and those aren't currently legally binding, but the authority did indicate in a previous consultation paper that it proposed that binding codes of practice would be introduced, and I think we can definitely expect to see developments there. Finally, and tying in with the increased supervisory provisions of the directive, the roadmap indicated that the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection would be tasked with identifying new powers and measures for the authority. And the thinking there is that it would enable them to take preemptive action to address any shortcomings identified in schemes, governance processes. Okay, so those are some points which I think, as you say, we can expect to see reflected in the implementing legislation when it's introduced. There are other areas from which some pointers can be taken in the Pensions Authority paper on IR2 considerations. And I just want to mention a few of these at this juncture. I mean, that paper provides that the Pensions Authority will take a forward-looking and risk-based approach to regulation. Now, I know I've mentioned this already, and this is new in Ireland and is quite significant because it represents a shift from a reactive regulator to a proactive regulator. And we will certainly be keeping an eye on that. Linked with this then is a change in the relationship the regulator will have with pension schemes. The Pensions Authority has said that implementation of the directive will lead to a thorough review of trustee culture and activity. And while I'm not entirely sure what that means, this is not a conversation that trustees have ever had with the regulator before. And so in having that conversation now, trustees will need to be able to demonstrate how they prioritise the interests of their members. And in this regard, trustees will need policies for all significant activities to be able to, in effect, demonstrate that compliance. The authority's paper suggests the production of what they're calling a board manual for each set of trustees. And essentially, from what I can see, this would be an all-encompassing guide or document on how to run a pension scheme properly. It is also notable that all trustee papers must be made available to the pensions authority if requested, And that includes minutes of meetings. Now, of course, this then raises the question of the level of detail that should be included in minutes. And we might talk about that at a later stage. Separately then, and lastly, the authority has indicated that it expects trustees to have conducted and documented, in effect, their own due diligence, such as obtaining evidence of professional qualifications, their CPD, previous experience, as well as in relation to whether they might comply with what you've been talking about earlier, Jane, the proper standard before a person is appointed as a trustee. Now, when you actually think about that, as most trust deeds provide the employer with a unilateral power to appoint trustees, it is not entirely clear at this stage how that expectation might be met. So then, Jane, having considered the directive, as well as the related papers, is there anything you would suggest that trustees can do at this point? Well, Deirdre, I think in fairness to trustees, they're in a relatively tricky position. Without the detail of the implementing legislation, it's difficult for trustees to know what concrete action they can take at this point. 
And of course, we have to keep in mind that schemes with less than 100 members may be exempted from complying with most of the requirements of the directive. It is clear, though, that for many schemes, more robust governance procedures are going to be required. And I think trustees could begin assessing their current practices and systems against the requirements of the directive and identifying gaps. That would allow them to establish the areas where changes are going to be made and to consider how they're going to bring their schemes into compliance and also what external assistance they're going to require. A first step at a fairly basic level, for example, might be to look at the areas where policies are required by the directive and if the scheme doesn't already have those policies in place to start putting them in place. Then given the limited lead in time now to 13 January, I think trustees could also start looking at the composition of their trustee board. The authority has given a good level of detail in relation to what it's going to expect in terms of trustee qualifications and experience. And if trustees don't already have that level of qualification and experience in place on the board when looked at collectively, I think they could start taking steps to address that. Okay, thanks, Jane. And of course, we will be keeping a very close eye as this develops, especially the publication of draft legislation and any other related guidance and regulations. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the details of the implementing legislation. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Pensions Podcast. For more information, go to matheson.com forward slash pensions.